Now, on this Memorial Day weekend, I'd imagine that some of you are going to um, have some folks over. So just before we get started, I thought I'd try to be very helpful and tell you that when you bring people into your house, they actually notice things, okay? So I'm not really an authority on this subject, but good housekeeping is, so I just want to pass this on. I want to give you the five most common things that people notice, guests notice, when they come into your house. And I see some of you are already getting ready to take some notes. All right. This is what they do, and they give you some helpful suggestions in this article. First of all, apparently when people come into your home, they spy piles of mail laying around, okay? And so they, this is what they say is to have an empty drawer, and when people are coming over, just take everything and just put it in the empty drawer and shut it. Does anybody even have an empty drawer in their house? That's what I thought. Okay, neither do we, you know, but that's what you're supposed to do. All right, if you had an empty drawer, you probably had, wouldn't have this problem. Second thing they said is, uh, apparently, people notice if you have dust bunnies and cobwebs, so you want to watch out those corners and use a broom and a hand vacuum. Um, uh, about a week ago, we had a, a college guy at our house, pretty tall fella, and he was talking about he had been into a place, and he went and took his finger and went over on the ceiling fans to check, and he says, man, it was, there was no dust on there. I'm like, listen, don't do that at our house, you know? I'm like, I can't remember the last time we cleaned those. I'm like, oh, man, this can't be good here. So people are watching for that. You want to take care of that here. Uh, just by the way, if you were like under five foot four, uh, a lot of folks are taller than that. They are seeing things that you are not, just FYI. Third thing they said, uh, apparently guests notice a messy bathroom. So you want to kind of tidy that up, get some glass cleaner out there. Uh, here is something that apparently guests notice. When they go into your home, they notice if the kitchen sink has dishes in it or if it is overflowing, right? And so they said, listen, you want to avoid this embarrassment, so throw everything into the dishwasher. If that's full, this is what the good, best, uh, the good housekeeping says. They said to place everything in the oven. Like, are you serious? And then what are you going to do? Preheat the lasagna and just bake all your stuff there? I don't know. Anyway, that's what they said to do. And then finally, apparently guests notice that if your garbage can is overflowing, they notice the smell, they notice garbage going everywhere. You may have gotten used to it, but your guests are taking note of that. Just want to pass this on. You see, when people come into our homes, they check us out, right? I got news for you. When people enter into relationship with you, they're checking you out. They're actually looking and seeing what is there? Is there things that are attractive? Do I want to get to know you better? If you are a Christian, and I'd imagine a lot of folks that you came here today, you are a Christian, people expect that you, if you are a follower of Christ, that there is something of Jesus in your life, and they are looking for it. And so what we've been doing, we've been talking about Christian character. It was something that was highly emphasized a couple weeks ago as we're going through 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we actually talked about how does God develop character in our lives. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and hear that message because we walk through the text because it talks about how character is developed. And just to review, let me give you just a very simple definition of character. Character is the combination of the convictions we hold, the conduct we display, and the choices we make. Character is the combination of the convictions we hold, the conduct we display, and the choices that we make that makes up your character and people want to see what you're really all about you see who we are really is supposed to be demonstrated in how we live and you need to understand that if you're a christian 
people, non-believers and believers alike, expect that there's something of Jesus in your character. Now, it's easier to talk about character or to exhort character in others than it is to live it. I came across the story of a dad who was kind of disappointed that his son really wasn't studying very hard. So he took the approach of saying, you know, I'm going to bring up Abraham Lincoln as an example. And he said, you know, listen, son, Abraham Lincoln, when he was your age, he had to walk 15 miles uphill to get to the library to get some books. And then he walked 15 miles back uphill through the snow so he could sit by his fireplace and read those books. You know, when Abraham Lincoln was your age, that's what he was doing. You might want to take some notes. And the boy, you know, he's thinking about Abraham Lincoln and about his age and He's really listening to what his dad had to say. And then he goes, well, okay, dad, you know, when Abraham Lincoln was your age, he was the president of the United States. You know, don't confuse me with the facts. You know what I'm saying? Listen to what I'm saying, you know. It's it's easier to talk about character. Uh, This morning, I'm not standing up here as like, hey, I've got this all figured out. But I do believe that I am a work in progress. And I want you to know that your character is so critically important to your life, to your testimony, and to the glory of God, that we wanted to take one week to talk about what are the characteristics of a Christ-centered believer. What does Christian character really look like? And so I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, this would be a great one. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So on this morning where we'll be recognizing all these high school graduates, and as we're looking at the importance of character, you're not going to find a better verse that highlights the importance of character than 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. You see, this verse highlights five areas that reveal a Christ-centered life. And the very first thing he says is, don't let anybody look down upon the fact that you're young. Now, Timothy at this point is probably around his mid-30s. So, you know, your 40s, 30s, teenager, 20s, you're, you're looked upon as young. That's not a bad thing. But he says, don't let anybody look down upon your youthfulness, but rather show yourself as someone who really believes in Jesus. That Christ is really alive and at work in your life, shaping your character. And the very first characteristic he lists is, is let it Christ show up in your speech, meaning just kind of your conversation. You know, what we talk about reflects greatly about what we believe. And you need to understand that what you talk about in your speech, uh, in your interactions with others, it's all actually sourced in your heart, in your mind. Remember what Jesus had to say? Like Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 34, he says, For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. What's going on inside gets manifested in your words. And so Jesus went on to say, you know what? The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Why? Because the mouth speaks from that which fills your heart. So the idea is, Fill your heart and your mind. That's what when the Bible speaks of heart. It's like the control center of one's life. Mind, emotion, heart, will. Fill it with truth. 
fill it with Christ. Because what happens is your mouth will reflect what's going on. There, that's why the Bible actually places some warnings. There's certain things like you don't want to be talking about. He says, like, for instance, you want to always be truthful. You want to avoid being the slander or the liar or someone's got a lot of impurity in their speech. You're just you're just going off with your anger. He says, really, when those things happen, that's a heart condition. Address it. Take it to Jesus. Ask the Lord, what is it that's going on in my life that this kind of speech is being reflected in me? And your mouth, your tongue, it's so very powerful. Look at James chapter 3. I looked at it this weekend here. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I encourage you to do that if you haven't recently. Because it talks about the power of your tongue. I mean, it can do great things. Praise the living God. It can encourage the saints. You can educate. You can inform. You can just enjoy life with people because of your words. But do you know that your same tongue can literally destroy people? Like he says in James chapter 3, verse 5, he says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, pretty small, but he says, Yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Your words, your mouth, can literally destroy your family, extended family, uh, your work environment, a church, your friendships. It all gets started with your mouth. Uh, years ago, the Forest Service had this commercial that said, one tree can produce a million matches, and one match can destroy a million trees. That's the idea. You want to be careful with this one little match. Friends, you want to be careful with your words. Christ wants to shape your life. And it will be reflected in your words. And so what happens is, is as you grow in wisdom, God's word starts taking root in your life. You actually have things to contribute. Your words can be encouragement. What people so desperately need is just a, an encouraging voice. As a Christian, you have the capacity to do that because of your relationship with Jesus. There's a great verse, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. So in your actions, you can even ask God. He'll actually show you how to interface well with grace and with people. And so just remember this. Whether you're talking or texting, in the living room or the locker room, wherever you might be, you need to understand your words reflect who you follow. That's why Paul says, listen, when it comes to your character, let your speech show that an example, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. Notice the second uh, trait that he highlights. God intends that this relationship with Jesus is not only going to reflect your words, but also your conduct. You see that in verse 12? It has the idea of your behavior. We have the tendency to live out what we believe. Your convictions, your values, your attitudes, your beliefs, guess what? They get displayed in how you behave. And so he says, let your conduct be lived in such a way that you're above reproach. Ask God for his spirit to work in your way so that in your life, so that like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control will be manifested in your life. Because after all, how we live is to reflect who we follow. 
And really, how you behave says so much about your relationship with God. The, the world, and even people in your own family, are looking to see what difference does Jesus make. Are you able to forgive? How do you handle your finances? Can you exercise discernment? What do you do when things go wrong? Are you thankful? Can you express and demonstrate emotional control? Are you a generous person? Does your behavior reflect this belief that you have in Jesus? And what you want to do is ask God, would you help me develop consistency, integrity, that who I am in private is who I am in public. There is a a guy, this is going to date some of you, but how many of you remember Eddie Haskell? Okay, if you raise your hand, this is a show from the 50s and 60s. Okay, is it on Netflix? I don't know. Is it? Okay, it's, it's called Leave it to Beaver. And uh, so you have Beaver and his brother, and they have this friend, and his name is Eddie Haskell. And this is kind of how Eddie Haskell ruled. Uh, when he was around teachers, uh, parents, police, oh, he was the kindest, most respectful young man. Like, he would be over at the Cleaver's home, and he'd say, oh, that is just such a lovely dress you're wearing, Mrs. Cleaver. You know, and he would just say that, and, you know, and he was just... But then when folks were away, the teachers weren't there, man, Eddie's true colors were up in action. Man, the guy was a terror. He was always up to no good. And so, like, to, like people would say, hey, you don't want to be like Eddie Haskell. And immediately people knew you were kind of a double-sided individual, one way around one people, but boy, when you had the opportunity, you let it fly. Friends, when it comes to your conduct, Jesus wants integrity. That means that he is affecting how you behave because he is changing what you believe. Let me give you another category that he lists here. Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, and this next characteristic is so distinctively Christian. In your love, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, love has the idea here, it's not so much like emotion as it is one's self-sacrificial service for others. This is the love that, by the way, that God has for us. It's a love that does what is in our best interest. Whether or not we're responsive to it, God always does the loving thing what's in our best interest. Trust Him, He'll show you, He'll see you through it. But God intends that just as He is a God who loves this way, He intends for His people to love in a similar way. So often we think that love is about emotion, and that if I've got the emotion, if I feel a certain way toward you, well, then I'm going to engage you in a particular way. But the love that he's talking about here, a Christian love, is a love that says, you know what, it's a matter of choice. I choose to love you. Even when you were not really overly lovable, it is a choice. It is a decision I make, and I'm trusting God to give me the strength to do that, but this is the kind of love that we are to be known for. And I'll tell you that... This kind of love for God and love for others is an extremely powerful testimony to the world that you are an example of those who believe. Now, I also will tell you this. You can do very good things with the wrong motive. Do you know that? Like, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when it extols the virtues of love? Like in verse 3, Paul writes, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... Is that a good thing? Sure. And if I surrender my body to be burned, you're willing to sacrifice for others. Yourself. You're willing to give your body to be burned. And he says, 
but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Good things, wrong motive, profits you nothing. So that we will understand what does love look like. He begins this great description, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But what I'd like to ask you to do is, every time you hear the word, the noun love in these next verses, put your name in there. This is what love is like. It says, love is patient. So could you put Grant is patient. Sally is kind. After all, this is love. And is not jealous. Kelly does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. That word has the idea that you act inappropriately. They do not seek their own. Is not provoked. Listen to this one. You want to know what love looks like? Does not take into account a wronged suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Why? Because love never fails. And when we learn to love people like this, not only does the world get an example of what a follower of Jesus really looks like, friends, this is life. Man, to be a loving individual, to just kind of set yourself aside, put, to put another's interest before your own. Say, Jesus, would you just do your work and do your love through me? Friends, this makes life like just so much more alive. It's a fuller, deeper, richer experience. You become a more mature, fuller person when you actually allow God's love to flow through you. And really, the ultimate expression of love is when you're willing to put your life down as a sacrifice for another individual. That's what Jesus said. Remember in John 15, verse 13, the Lord said this, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You want to know what real love looks like. The greatest demonstration of it is when you are willing to lay down your life, either physically or figuratively, I'm willing to sacrifice me for your benefit. Friends, that is love. When we love like this, it gives the world an example. Hey, this Jesus, he's really at work. He's showing up in the way these people are loving. Let me give you a fourth characteristic. Fourth characteristic of just a, a Christ-centered individual where Jesus is shaping your character. This is what he wants to do. He says, let Christ show up in your speech, in your conduct, in your love and your faith. Show that you really believe, that you actually have a confident trust in God. There's a reliance upon God. And if you want a simple definition of faith, faith is taking God at his word. It takes God's word and it believes it. It believes God. It exercises trust, discernment, hope, love. It takes God at his word and says, God, I believe you. I believe your word is my counsel. And so what you do is you look to cultivate faith in your life. How do you do it? You cultivate faith by being in the Word, hearing the Word. You cultivate faith by learning how to pray and to go through your day talking with God because what this does is it cultivates this rich relationship with God. And I want to tell you one other thing is that you need to pick your friends closely. Your closest friends 
are likely to be highly influential whether faith is cultivated or squelched. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The converse is also true. Good company cultivates good morals. Who are the most important friends in your life are probably going to be highly influential in how faith is being cultivated in your life. And then finally, he says, listen, Timothy, I want you to show yourself an example of those who believe. Don't let people look down upon the fact that you're young. Show them in your speech, your conduct, your love, faith, and this final one, your purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. This has the idea that in sexual matters, whether it be your thoughts or how you behave, show yourself as one who is pure and aligned with Christ. Now, that requires that you make good choices. That looks like you're living above reproach. Remember what we saw a couple weeks ago, 2 Timothy 2.22? He says, now flee from youthful lust. I can assure you, every single one of us at times have impulses in our body to do what is wrong. It is like to function in, in, uh, in relationship to the passions that are experienced in your mind. Like, go for it. And you live in a world that reinforces the live for the moment. And so he says, listen, you show yourself an example by your purity. How you treat the opposite sex. How you handle yourself. You see, purity of life begins with purity of heart. And right now, we, we live in a world that is just inundated with the opportunity to let yourself go in this area. It's reinforced. But don't think that in, like, biblical times, it was a lot worse. Like, Timothy is living in a city called Ephesus. It is actually a center for sexual immorality. But Paul is saying, listen, what the world needs are examples of those who believe. And let it show up in your purity. Now, I want, this is such a big issue that I wanted to spend a little bit of time to actually tell you how do you overcome the dangers of temptation. Every single one of us is going to, has, and will face significant temptation. If you do not know how to interface with it, it's likely like you're showing up to a gunfight with a knife and you're going to lose. And I don't want that for you. So what I want to do is tell you, how do you interface and overcome the dangers of temptation? The first thing is, you want to develop a deep awareness of God's continual presence. See, God wants you growing and going deeper. To have an awareness that he is with me always. To be in tune with the fact that God is with you. That there's never a time where you're truly alone. Actually, he's always with you. And so what happens is, when you're learning to trust in the presence of the Lord, you're going to find that he gives you the strength to overcome. And a healthy fear of God will actually keep you from engaging sin. So develop a deep awareness of God and his presence. Let me give you another. Have convictions before the crisis. Have your convictions in place before the crisis hits. Encountering temptations is not a sin. But engaging them is. You're going to encounter them. They're going to be great. But what you need are convictions. A conviction is not just something that you hold, but it is something that holds you. What are your convictions? So I wanted you to know, like, you've got to have this figured out before the crisis hits. Do not think 
that when the temptation is there, that it's all just going to come together and you're going to get it figured out in the heat of the moment, chances are that's not going to happen. So you develop your convictions. What do I believe? God, how do you want me to live? What would be honoring to Jesus before the crisis hits? Let me give you another. Know that love involves loyalty. Know that love involves loyalty. That's true in your relationship with God, and it's true in your relationship with others. And I just want you to know that when sin uh, is, is creeping at the door and it comes in, in the form of temptation, getting you to buy in, it's kind of like a lure that's got a little bit of bait wiggling on it. And how sin functions is this. It, temptation, when it comes, it's like just focus on the bait. Focus on the bait. Don't worry about everything around you. Simply do not think of any of the consequences of your behavior. Just focus on the bait. Uh, recently, I heard of a, a couple that, uh, that you got two people married to two other people, and they engage in an adulterous relationship. And now all of it's being worked out, but the pain is starting to be realized. You see, that, that couple that engaged in their adulterous relationship, they are kind of like that fish that just focuses on the bait. They don't see the hook, but they bite in, and all of a sudden that hook then starts taking them places they never ever wanted to go. They never thought of it. And that's how sin works. You never think of the implications or the consequences of your behavior at the time, right? You don't think about how this is going to affect your family or your parents or your grandparents or your children or your spouse or your future spouse. You don't think about those things at the time. That's why he says, friends, your purity. Let Jesus show up in how you handle yourself. Um, let me give you something else. Do not become callous to sin. If you're in a pattern of your life where you're just like, yeah, I just kind of go with it. I, I see it around me. It's all around me. I, I engage in it. And it doesn't really have an effect on me. That is a dangerous place to be. Do not become callous to sin. Whether you're seeing it played out on TV or you're watching it being played out in relationships, never get callous to it. It is always dangerous. Let me give you a couple others. Know that when we are convinced with God's Concerned with God's glory, we will be careful to avoid sin. When we're committed to God's glory, there will develop in us just to like, hey, listen, I really don't want to be engaging in sin. Here's another one. Be smart enough to stay away from the source. If there is a particular place or person or situation that gets you in trouble, I got really simple advice. Stay away. Stay away from it. Why are you going to like engage it? If you know what's probably going to happen, if you need a Bible verse for that, got a couple, but I'll give you this one. First Peter chapter two, verse 11, it says, beloved, I urge you as alien strangers, you want to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. You see, when you engage in fleshly, fleshly lusts, you follow the impulses of your body. There is a sore soul war that starts taking place. It's like waging and it's, it's terrible. It's heavy. It's difficult. It's conflict. In your being, be start, smart enough to stay away from the source. And then finally, let me just give you this final one. Remember this. It is always better to flee than to fail. It is always better to flee than to fail. Remember uh, Joseph? Here he is, slave, 
in Egypt. You got Potiphar's wife, his master's wife. She keeps coming on to him and, and trying to just get him to involve her. And she takes matters in his own hands, literally, you know, grabs his cloak. She's throwing herself to him. And Joseph says, I can't do this. I mean, it'd be an offense to God and it'd be wrong to my master who happens to be your husband. No, I'm sure there were impulses of body thing like, whoa, let's go for it. He's like, no way. And literally he ran. Better to flee than to fail. And so before you act out, before you scar up your life, just give God 10 seconds. That's all I'm asking. Give God 10 seconds. What do you mean by that, Grant? Just do this. Before you engage, you bite onto that lure. That looks like a nice little worm or a frog on there. But before you bite in, ask God, just give him 10 seconds and say, God, What's the way out? And he'll show you. I can guarantee it. How can you guarantee it? Because it's written in the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So every temptation you're facing, and some of them are seriously strong, guess what? They're common to individuals. And God is faithful. He'll not tempt you beyond, allow temptation to go beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There is a way out. It might be radical, like you running, but there's always a way out. And I need you to know that that choice is yours. It's there. The question is, will you take it? Just give God 10 seconds and say, God, Show me the way out, and he will. Now, you, you go through these character qualities, and like, you're like, whoa, I have failed in all of these. Man, I am such a sorry excuse for a Christian. I may as well just give up. And that is exactly what Satan wants you to do. This is how it works. Please know this. When we sin, and we all do, we need to learn to go to him. When we sin, we need to learn to go to him because what happens is Satan is like, you are such a miserable wretch to even call yourself a Christian. You may as well just give up and stay as far away from God as possible. Stop identifying as a Christian. Just drop out of church. Come on, you are a wretched wreck. And that is how Satan functions. When we sin, and we all do, that'd be awesome if we didn't sin, after, since we've know, come to know Christ. But guess what? We still do, right? What do you do? Ignore it? Rationalize it? No, you take it to the Lord. After all, you're to be an example of those who believe. What do believers do when they sin? Anybody got any idea? You don't know? Okay, let me tell you. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You show that you believe. Yeah, you're a sinner. Okay. And I've sinned, so what do you do? You show yourself that you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and you go to Him. Say, Lord, I have sinned. I've sinned significantly. I have really messed this up. I agree this is not in keeping with your holiness, and I confess it. And God always cleanses His children. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is greater than our sin. His love is far greater than you might imagine. And he wants you to know it. 
And so what do you do? You learn to go to him. Show that you believe that the gospel. And notice how this closes. He says, show yourself an example of those who believe. That word example means like a pattern or a model. You just silence the critics by just showing yourself, you know what? I believe in Jesus. Yeah, not perfect. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I believe. And I will tell you that your life, being an example, is the greatest tool that you have. Whether you're a leader, or a parent, or a student. You want to show this world that Jesus is real, and he really transforms lives? This is your verse. It's why the New Testament places such emphasis on example. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'll teach you. You come to me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul counsels, be an example. Show people what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you're an elder, if you're involved in spiritual leadership, do you know how you lead? First Peter chapter five verse three. You are to lead by example. You show the flock what it means. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you're following and trusting a perfect Savior. You show that you really believe. And so I just want to ask you, what is the example that you are leaving? What's the example you are leaving? I read a story. I suspect that it's fictitious, but there was a, a lady, and she was apparently having a bad day. She happened to be following uh, the local postmaster as they were making their way home from work. And the postmaster saw a yellow light, so he came to a stop instead of, like, driving through it, you know, or wait, you know. And so this lady was furious that he stopped. She's going ballistic, laying on the horn, rolling down the window, and just cussing him out. And she's just going off on this guy, going ballistic, and all of a sudden there's a cap on her car. She looks, and there's a police officer standing there. And he has her get out of the car, and uh, apparently get the car to the side of the road. He arrests her, takes her down to the station, has her fingerprinted, books her, and puts her in a holding cell. A couple hours later, the same officer then comes to this lady and says, I'm sorry. I am really sorry about this, but um, I I made a mistake. I, uh, I noticed how you were behaving, how you were cussing a blue streak to this, uh, this guy uh, in front of you who was stopped uh, at the light. I noticed that on your license plate it had the what would Jesus do. You had a little sticker, a bumper sticker that said follow me to Sunday school. And you had this little chrome fish that generally Christians put on their car. And I saw how you were behaving and I assumed that you had stolen the car. I'm sorry. I'll tell you this, friends, because if you say that you follow Jesus Christ, they rightfully, the world rightfully expects that you're going to look something like Jesus. And so what you want to do, friends, is you realize we have an amazing opportunity to live out the gospel. And we do so as trusting in Jesus and live as an example. And by the way, I want you to know the world is wanting to see real Christians. Not the pseudo-chameleon type that, you know, I'll say what I need to say around Christians, but those who believe not only in this church, but especially when you walk through those doors. There is in the the Atlantic a very interesting article titled Listening to Young Atheists. 
uh, they had done this study where they went to all these college campuses and they specifically did interviews with college students that identified themselves as atheists, those who were involved in like the secular student alliances or the free thought societies. I mean, there are groups on campus that focus that function kind of like Christian ministries, except they're trying to cultivate unbelief. And they, they actually, some of them even proselytize. They're trying to win people over to like, you know, God is dead, God doesn't exist, you know, you're a fool if you believe in him. And so they went and wanted to talk about these people, those that were determinedly irreligious. And what they found was rather surprising. They found that these non-believing, like I'm wearing it and I'm proud of it, actually wanted to see the reality of Jesus in the lives of those who said they were Christians. So Stephanie at Northwestern, she said this, quote, the connection between Jesus and a person's life, that wasn't clear to me. She was expecting that it should be, but she can't see it. Or listen to Michael. Listen to this guy. Quote, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life. And you would want to change the lives of others. And I haven't seen too much of that. That's what people are looking for. This verse in action through the Spirit of God. I'm reminded of a, there was a Scottish uh, philosopher and skeptic by the name of David Hume back in the 1700s. And he was no friend of Christianity. But there was another guy by the name of George Whitfield in the 1730s and 40s in England and the colonial and the colonies. Uh, there was what's called the First Great Awakening. And George Whitfield was just this guy who just would preach in open fields and in city squares and he'd be proclaiming the gospel. And on one occasion in a field where all these hundreds of people had gathered to hear Whitfield preach, someone identified that there was David Hume standing there uh, in the midst of this great crowd hearing the gospel preached by this George Whitfield. And someone approached him and said, hey, why are you here? I thought you didn't believe. He says, I don't. But pointing to Whitfield, he said, but he does. Friends, that's what people are looking for. Just people that are genuine believers in Jesus. Living out this verse. Putting the character of Christ on display. And I don't want you to know just on my own personal testimony. I am so glad that there were high school students and college students that took this verse to heart. Because me coming to Christ, the multi-year process that was was a result of Christians. They weren't perfect, but they were trusting in a perfect Savior. And through their speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, they showed themselves an example of those who believe. So don't live a double life. If you're living the double life, what happens is it kind of distorts your soul. And it leaves you feeling empty, guilty, and shallow. God's got something so much better for you. What he wants you to do is to know the goodness of Jesus. So just be 100% all in. Remember this, you know, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And what you want to do is keep Christ at the center and let your life speak. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an awesome verse. You are great. You love us and you change us from the inside out. And so, Lord, um, for someone who has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus... Will they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self and sin, and I believe in Christ. And Lord, we all fall short. We confess our sin to you even now. 
there's nothing perfect about us but you. And we thank you that you forgive us and you cleanse us. And our testimony is that you're a God who transforms sinners. And Lord, help us to live this out in your strength for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.